to Intrigue Explained. I'm Dimitri Grosvitsky from Explained Trade. With me is John Fowler from International Intrigue. And this is another Diplomats Debate edition of our podcast. On this episode, we are going to be tackling a somewhat thorny subject, which is whether authoritarian regimes, dictatorships, and so on, have any kind of advantages when it comes to foreign policy. In fact, whether they have the ultimate advantage, whether they are simply better equipped than democracies like the ones that we live in. It's a subject that could get us into a lot of trouble, so I will be emphasizing three or four hundred times over the course of the next hour that we will each be taking a position and arguing for it as best we can, not necessarily expressing our personal views. So that is very important when you put us on no-fly lists. <laughs> In addition to our main topic, we're going to be taking a brief look at the international implications of the U.S debt ceiling deal yeah and john you're going to be providing us an update on kosovo Hmm. and the incredibly complex situation that is brewing there but before we get into that you know i I just said this was our 13th episode and i wanted to circle back with you john because we've now debated a lot of things some of them very big and some of them quite topical and in the news and i was wondering given that time some times passed whether any of those topics have developed in your mind at all based on things that have happened in international relations? I don't know. I think I think the whole value of this kind of format is being able to test assumptions that we already had. And, you know, I think we switch back and forth between taking the side that we don't necessarily believe. So I, I suppose that I, mean, I don't know that my mind has changed on anything I thought prior to starting a debate with you. I think the most useful one for me was when we debated China and the arms provision to Russia. That was a while ago now when, when China was thinking of providing um, weapons to Russia. Mm-hmm. And I think that just really helped me. I don't I think I changed my view, but I think I went from being like quite unnuanced about like, oh, that's a terrible thing to like, ah, uh, now I can understand why the Chinese might be contemplating it. I still think it's the wrong move. And here's why I think it's the wrong move. Um, but I think that's useful. I- I'm giving some remarks next week at a NATO conference. And one of the key points I want to get across to people is that it's okay to kind of end up at the same place you start, but it's not okay to not do the work to get there. So the example I'm using there is we all know North Korea's state media is full of rubbish, so you shouldn't pay attention to them. But like, you have to know why they're full of rubbish and like how to pick it out so then you can apply it to other issues and be like, oh, well, they're not the North Korean news media, but they are doing exactly the same stuff that the North Korean news media does, therefore I should disregard it. Which is a long way of saying it's not good enough just to be like, oh, I don't agree with China providing Russian arms. You have to be like, why it's not a good idea? And then arrive back at that first premise. So I think that's probably been the most useful thing long answer but (laughs) no i think i think it's a good one that's one of the debates i think back to quite a bit as well it's one of the first ones we did i think through talking to you about it i started to think about how how the ccp might justify it and what to look for in terms of trial balloons and dipping their toes in the water you and i have talked about this before with china that so often they do things that you're not quite sure whether they're saying it with their whole chest or just trying something and seeing what happens. 
seeing what the reaction is. Yeah, and, and I think that's you, you're making sort of a very similar point to what I was making there, which is the idea of like, it's more nuanced and you get smarter when you say, oh, I can understand why the Russians might want to do that. Here's why I think it's a bad idea. But it's better than just being like, oh, I don't think China's, you know, China has no good ideas. And you can kind of start to see how things develop. Like maybe they don't want to do it. Maybe they're just testing it out. You know, blah, blah. You could, it just basically puts a lot of nuance into your argument and the way you think about things. And, you know, it's a, it's a skill, I think, that, um, you know, we're developing. <laughs> we're by no means very good at it. But it's something that we used to do in, in law school all the time. That idea of just... Your arguments and you and what you think get a lot better when you test them and you stre- and you put them under stress. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's enough of it in our line of work in geopolitics, by the way. Yes, and I would also say that social media is especially bad for yeah often fronting you with a conveniently stupid version totally of the other side's argument. And that's enough. And if you dive into it further, you're actually a traitor to the cause or something like that. You're actively discouraged from developing nuance. So it is useful to sometimes just have someone absolutely steel man an argument that you don't agree with. Mm. So I know, I'm finding it hugely useful. Likewise. I'm sure our listener uh, is... Th- big, <laughs> big hello to, to Steve. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good spot to move on to our first topic, our first short hit from International Intrigue. This is a story that I think everyone's been following, but I wanted to... Mm. Talk to you about a little bit, which is the U.S. debt ceiling. Uh, We're recording this on uh, Thursday. The House has just passed the U.S. debt ceiling extension through to January of 2025. It still has to go through the U.S. Senate and obviously be signed by Joe Biden. But the expectation is that it will, given that the House was seen as the far greater hurdle. But I guess I wanted to ask you, first of all, whether you had any thoughts on what are the international relations aspects of this whole debacle? Uh, Anyone who's watching the live stream might have seen me try to stifle a yawn there, and that's got (laughs) nothing to do with Dimitri. I just, um, this issue is just one of those ones that, I'll be honest, like in years past when they've had debt fights, debt ceiling fights, I've been kind of across every detail and like waiting waiting for updates. And this time I just, I really just didn't care. Not because it's not important, but just because it was so clearly from the start, domestic political nonsense. Um, You know, I don't think it was ever unlikely to pass. That doesn't mean it's not a serious issue. And that doesn't mean in the future that they won't play more brinksmanship with it. But I think my reaction to it was looking at the US domestic political scene and just being like, oh my God, you guys need to like stop being a clown show. But I was never really worried that Um, it was not going to pass. And I suspect, you know, that's kind of how the markets have treated it around the world. You know, I'm probably generalizing a little bit there, but I don't think anyone was really concerned that they wouldn't get it passed. From a foreign relations perspective, I, I, I don't know, like... Does it move the needle from, from for a country dealing with the U.S.? I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone was is shocked that they thought U.S. politics was a, a very clean and tidy and responsible affair. And now they're shocked, they say, shocked to know that the Republican Party likes to play, you know, likes to play um, dangerous games. And, and, you know, I think you're going to probably speak to the U.S. dollar and this, I think, frankly, silly argument that the world is going to, this is going to cause the world to de-dollarize, not not something that I think is on anyone's risk matrix as a likely outcome. So I don't know, man. I The long story short is I kind of feel like this was one of those things designed to take a lot of front page space, succeeded in taking a lot of front page space, but I don't think that anybody who has kind of 
been around the traps a bit or, you know, has skin in the game was overly worried. But I don't know. What what do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get into the domestic side of this at all. Right. Because um, it's not, not that podcast. I have hashtag views, but I, I'm not going to share them <laughs> with you here. I do think this is one of those issues where I think most people expected a deal to get done, but it mm. is also one of those things where, you know, a deal was inevitable until it's not. And right. there were enough variables, you know, things could have gone a different direction. And I think that's that's important to keep in mind. And in part, like, did we get a deal because we freaked out is always the question I'm asking. So do we have to freak out each and every time? Because the second we become complacent, they no longer feel the pressure to get into a room and sort this out. I've always got that at the back of my mind. And I think it's a good, a really good point because you kind of have to show that you're taking it seriously, even if in your brain you're kind of not overly worried. And, you know, Biden did that, right? Like mm. he cancelled his trip to, we talked about it very briefly, but he cancelled his trip when he was supposed to come to Asia for the quarter. Fairly important meeting that sent a pretty bad sign mm. to the region, but it was a show to domestic politi- political kind of operators that like, hey, I'm taking this seriously, even if his White House was probably always relatively confident they'd get a deal. But yeah, go on. Every time anything happens, and sometimes even when nothing happens, people start talking about what will replace the US dollar as the global reserve currency. Yeah. Is it going to be the the Chinese currency? Is it going to be a new BRICS currency? Is just something we should do an episode about, but is a really silly concept for a whole bunch of reasons is it going to be bitcoin are we all going to be trading exclusively in nfts of apes in hats like and the one thing i keep coming back to is that there's no structural reason that could happen the only way i think it will happen in the foreseeable future that anything challenges u.s dollar supremacy is if the U.S. does it to itself yeah i think that's right no one's knocking the u.s off that bike but something like this where you suddenly devalue U.S. bonds, which are the sort of cornerstone of every major fund everywhere, because that's just where you park large amounts of money and really safe assets. Mm. I don't know if that would push it all the way, but that would be a serious slow. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's right. I get out of my depth pretty quickly when I wade into the the technical macroeconomic waters. Um, but everything I've read from people smartfather. <laughs> There we go. That's a perfect, perfect example of... <laughs> apparently apparently a low bar to clear, John. Oh, my God. Far smarter, if I say that properly. I mean, if that's not if that's not a demonstration of what I'm talking about, I don't know what is. But um, people far smarter than I seem to say that even if that did happen, you know, and, and the die was cast in the sense that the world would move to a different reserve currency, it would take decades. Like, it would take a long, long time time for this to happen. And that's assuming that it is going to happen, which is an assumption that I don't think many people share. So I completely agree with you. It's it's just an unlikely thing to happen. But if it was to happen, it will be self-inflicted. And God knows the, the US political system has serious capabilities at, uh, at shooting itself in the foot, right? And that might be a good moment to transition to our second quick story of the week. Uh, this is a story on which I am completely out of my depth, John. So we're entirely in your hands. What in good God's name is happening in the Balkans? Yeah, it, well, can, can I be honest? I'm, it's a, it's a, it's worrying. Um, we we are paying attention to it with um with you know a little bit of trepidation. So 
what what happened recently? So this earlier this week, um, a bunch of dozens of NATO peacekeepers were injured um, in Kosovo, in the northern part of Kosovo. They clashed with ethnic Serbs, um, and, and you know this is this is for the, those who don't sort of aren't across this. This is a conflict that obviously wasn't came to the fore in the nineties with the NATO intervention in in the Kosovo region. But it, at its core, it's an ethnic clash between Serbians and ethnic Albanians in Kosovo. Kosovo has been um, an independent nation since, now you're going to test me, but I think it's probably the mid-2000s, about 15 years or so, um, mid to late 2000s. Um, it is not recognized by Russia or China, but it's recognized by a lot, of part of the, a lot of the rest of the world as an independent nation. It is still got lots of Serbs living there. It's got an, um, an Albanian ethnic government, and those two sides do not get along. So that's the kind of context of, the, of what happened. The most recent flare-up this, this week was because there were some recent mayoral elections in the, in the region. A, a pro-Serbian nationalist party said, let's boycott these elections, and that led to a bunch of Albanian, ethnic Albanians being elected as regional mayors and like we're talking voter turnout was like under four percent so it's hardly a a real democratic mandate but when it became time for those mayors to take office the kosovo government again ethnically albanian deployed their security forces to make sure they could do that and that has kicked off a lot of upset from the serbian population in these areas who are saying like you're deploying security forces against us it was an illegitimate election you know the whole the whole works and what makes it dangerous is that the serbian government who which is led by a fairly nationalistic chap um i think his name is vucic um he's pretty pro-russian serbia's been pro-russian for a long time and and i guess kosovo is supported by the us and the eu um but he said like what what's happening is a disgrace he put his military on high alert he camped out on the border with his military like he's making this a political issue and interestingly blinken secretary of state blinken from the us he, he i think he was pretty strong in his language in saying what the albanian ethnic government of Kosovo did by putting the security forces into those areas was not a good idea and it risked escalating tensions. So, you know, at the start of the year, we wrote five things to watch in 2023 kind of thing. And and one of those I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of sad to say was that this conflict will flare up and it really risks boiling over into a war. I don't think we're there yet. It would take a lot for the Serbs to kind of, I think, invade Kosovo as it were. But, you know, it's not like these guys don't have a lot of experience in doing that. And they may see that both sides may see the world being distracted by Ukraine as a good chance to kind of settle some scores. Either way, it's it's worrying. I understand uh, one of the actions that Blinken took in addition to strident criticism was cancelling the invitation to Kosovo to participate in some military exercises. Yeah. Uh, A lot of people interpreted that as sort of a punitive measure do you think that's what it was or was he just trying to sort of cool tensions by not having a sort of very, very overtly here's Kosovo alongside NATO troops at this moment? Yeah, I think both, right? I think that, but that's, that, I mean, that's they're both good takes. I think one, it's kind of like the US and the EU do not need to be distracted by this kind of, you know, let's call it into Nissan fighting because it is, it is kind of, you know, ethnic clashes that don't need to happen. Um, so I, I, I think both the EU and the US are kind of pretty keen to be like, oi, stop it. We're focusing on something bigger. But uh, but you're also right in the sense that I think that it would be a terrible look for NATO mm-hmm. because I think the Kosovo issue would be less unanimous than the Russia-Ukraine issue in the EU and in NATO. Um, you know, I'm not saying that they wouldn't come to a conclusion, but I think that would really start to test the solidity of those alliances. Yeah, and then third, I think the US has always 
wanting to remind the Kosovo government that, hey, without us, you really don't exist. Like, if we don't commit to protecting you and supporting you and funding you and advising you, the EU will probably go with us and you're on your own and the Serbs are, you know, not someone you want to play with um, without our backing. So I think it's kind of this mix of just basically like, not now, stop it, like pull your head in, don't, this is not the time to cause... What what I think most people see is really unnecessary escalations, like sending the security forces in, having clashes with NATO troops. And, you know, as I said, I think dozens of NATO troops were actually injured. So, like, it's a pretty serious thing. I think it's just one of those things of, like, you don't need to be doing this right now. Pull your head in. Like, yes, you don't get along, but it's it's worth keeping a lid on it. That's my take anyway. On that question of whether the West will, will be interested in getting involved in the same degree as Ukraine, I just keep thinking about the last sort of two decades of conflicts and how over and over one of the solid predictors of whether the West will consider intervention is how complex a narrative it is. Yeah. And the more complex, the less likely. Right. Uh, I mean, I think about Crimea, Luhansk and Donetsk before MH17 was shut down. I think about the Georgian war. And if a conflict looks messy and complicated and everybody is kind of, you can't tell who the bad guys are and who the good guys are, and it all looks very tribal, the West has a tendency of going like, oh, too, too hard. Well, I, ca- I can't explain why we go in here. Yeah. And I, and I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Because at the end of the day, we have democracies that at least in theory, require popular support and a democratic mandate to deploy troops into harm's way. And if if you can't explain to a voter why you're doing something, I think there's a pretty good rule of thumb that you shouldn't do it. And I think that's exactly, I mean, your point is perfectly made because what Putin in Crimea and Luhansk back in 2014, what he managed to do so successfully was confuse people. Well, it's Euromaidan was, uh, you know, a, a, a coup or whatever it was. And we're not doing anything. These places are already Russian. There's already Russian speakers. There's human rights violations, blah, blah, blah. And throwing so much shit against the wall that most people, 99% of people, smart people go, you know what? I don't know what the truth is here. So like, I don't really want to see Iraq or Afghanistan 2.0 happen. Um, and why he failed this time, I think, was at least in part because the director of the CIA, Bill Burns, was very, very clear in debunking a lot of those efforts at being like, oh, it's a Nazi regime. Um, they've called for us. They're independent republics. We're not invading all the shit that he was throwing against the wall. And the CIA director came out and said, no, you're about to invade Ukraine. We know you are. Don't do it. And when they did it, it became a much clearer narrative of you invaded a sovereign country. You shouldn't have done that. And, I, and I, so I think it's a great point. That might be a good place to move on to our, our main debate. What we want to look at is whether authoritarian regimes have more tools, are better suited to conducting foreign policy than democracies. And John, you are going to argue that authoritarians have advantages, and I am going to defend democracy. And I just want all of the listeners to know that for this one, this is absolutely a reflection of our character <laughs> and prior convictions. <laughs> uh, and John's passport number is... Yeah. No, this is quite amusing because you are, you are clearly the far greater China hawk than I am. So this is this is very much you putting on the, the red team hat, I think, for, for your own beliefs. Uh, which should be should be interesting. Yeah. One thing I wanted to to see to clarify with you about the scope of this and how we're going to go about it. 
which is do you want to focus on arguing in the kind of abstract and theoretical or do you want to have a debate about whether historically authoritarian regimes have been more successful at foreign policy what's the battleground that, that you would prefer to fight on because i think both are equally valid yeah that's interesting well i think uh, i haven't really given much thought to the historical argument it's a great point but i think it's worth touching on at some point but i mean my, my view was essentially this was a you know a strategic theoretical question about the best kind of um, decision-making apparatus with which to execute a foreign policy but i think i think history could be very interesting i'm just going to busily you know google um <laughs> examples of <laughs> examples of benign dictatorships with excellent foreign policy and i suspect there probably aren't many <laughs> just google it singapore i don't know exactly well exactly um before we start i this idea for this topic came from i think probably our biggest fan he you know he loves everything we do um without reservation um but anyway you know who you are so thank you for suggesting the topic we thought it was very interesting and to everybody who's listening, please do suggest things that you would like to hear teased out and, and fought over, because I think yeah, the more ideas we get from from you folks, the better it'll be, rather than us just talking into a into a vacuum. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, did you wanna did you wanna kick us off? Yeah, I, I think one of the things we're gonna try and do today is just like make a single point and let each other come mm. back on rather than getting into monologues despite the fact that my general uh my general trend is to go into monologuing but i think the first thing that i theoretically about dictatorships or authoritarians or any kind of government structure that is basically ruled pretty comprehensively by one person or a party in power they don't have much opposition and they don't have many checks and balances on their decision making power is that it's just much more effective and efficient you can develop a foreign policy uh, doesn't to be clear it doesn't mean you don't take advice it doesn't mean you don't you know have different voices advising you it just means that you are the decider of it or the one party or the one person at the point of the pyramid is the decider of it and then once you've made that decision you can execute it to its fullest and over time um you know i think there's a there's a general maxim in business that you know good good strategy is fine and it's important, but execution and consistency and alignment of execution of a strategy is the far more important thing, such to the point that a great strategy poorly executed is far worse than a moderate strategy perfectly executed. So that's the first argument is that you can develop a strategy and you can really put it in place and execute it and get the whole government aligned behind it much more easily than you can with a democracy. This is an interesting point. I'm always really wary of arguments around the effectiveness of dictatorships because I'm always asking, are they better at this or are they just less transparent about all the ways they're screwing this up? So when when I hear that argument that, oh, they're, they can establish, they can identify what the play is and then they can call the play and the play gets executed uh, in honor of the person who suggested this topic i am going to be using sports metaphors relentlessly <laughs> despite this will be fun despite thinking that cricket is played with a club <laughs> and, and, I'm, and i'm always worried about that because if you look at most democracies in terms of foreign policy that is more or less how they work already most foreign policy doesn't require a legislature to pass a bill, so you're not subject to the whim of democracy in that regard. The Foreign Service answers to the executive in most democracies. The president, the prime minister, the foreign minister, they decide on a foreign policy strategy. 
their staff execute it, the civil service executes it to the best of their ability. Now, you don't necessarily get as many dissenting voices internally in a dictatorship to that as you would. You know, you don't have this phenomenon where in the US at one point you had the Republican chair of the House sending his own letters to foreign leaders to try to contrary to what Obama did. So you don't get that messy side as much, I think. But you do fundamentally get a pretty direct line between foreign minister calls a play, foreign service executes the play. And yes, okay, at some point there might be an election and that foreign minister might be replaced. But I guess a similar sort of thing could happen in an authoritarian regime. There could be a coup, or there could be a leader dies, or a foreign minister is replaced, and they suddenly go in a different direction. So uh, I'm not really sure I see the distinction you're drawing. Yeah, so let, let's 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 tease out that last thread. I think a foreign minister... So yeah, obviously a coup is always an, uh, a, a risk, but I mean... I. An election is far more regular and, you know, poses similar risks. In fact, I would argue is often, you know, in foreign policy, particularly if we talk about the big players, you know, the UK, the US right now, foreign policy is a battleground for an election. So it's reasonable to expect that, um, you know, when Biden replaced Trump, he, I mean, he, he did a lot of the same things, but he reversed a lot of the decisions. And I think it's fair to <laughs> say that Labor would do a lot of things differently to the Conservatives, perhaps even Brexit, maybe not, but perhaps, right? Um, so there is this idea that democracies can change tack a lot um, more often than dictatorships, even though there is the risk of coup. And the idea that a foreign minister is replaced, presumably they're replaced because they're not executing the will of the leader, which has been consistent throughout time. Obviously, I'm painting a, a, a nice picture or not a nice picture, but a, <laughs> a consistent picture of a dictatorship. But I think I think you've kind of made a very good point about foreign services vis-a-vis um, democracies and their consistency in that they sit in the executive by and large. But that, it, what is foreign policy? Is foreign policy the maintenance of relations, the maintenance of an embassy, the, the chatting between diplomats? Sure, it is a bit of that. But, but really what it is, is it's the setting of a vision for a country, you know, as it is in the world and as it relates to its neighbours and its friends and its enemies. And, and that in democracies does require Congress or Parliament or the legislature to get involved. For example, um, I mean, a, a great example is the US, um, in which that they are the the, the administrations and t- and like administrations after administrations after administrations have been huge proponents of using the ICC, the International Criminal Court of of Justice, um, and yet the government isn't the US isn't a party to the Rome Statute because it can't get it past Congress because of domestic political situations. So. As a foreign policy, you have a country that is like, oh, yeah, we love this idea of an international court where we can, you know, try human rights violations. And then the country's domestic legislature is like, yeah, no, we're not going to give up sovereignty. That's much more damaging to a foreign policy than the idea of, um, you know, maybe there's a coup or maybe there's something else. It's like if we want to join the IC, uh, the ICC, sorry, the International Criminal Court, not the Criminal Court of Justice, the International Criminal Court, I got that wrong. If we want to join that, then we'll join it and we join it properly. We Everything's going to be done because I can make that decision and everyone follows me. Um, and, and I guess to the other point too, in the US, ambassadors have to get approved by the Senate. And, you know, you know this as well as I do. The US often has huge amounts of gaps around the world where ambassadors can't get approved by a democratically elected legislature because of domestic political concerns. So it, it's, I think it's far messier um, in terms of foreign policy. 
I wanted to touch on the the effectiveness point uh, again because I think your kind of your your definition of effective was the ability to take a foreign policy vision and just execute it over time without a legislature, for example, getting in the way mm. or without changes in government. And even if we set things like coups and you know that revolutions aside, if I look at historical examples of authoritarian regimes just in the last kind of couple of years, a number of them, in fact, most of them have swung wildly. Putin was discussing joining NATO at one point and was sort of doing a rapprochement with the West. China, just in the last kind of 10 years, has gone from this, we are hyper-capitalist and have no relations with anybody, we're just here to trade, through to we are going to be the leaders of multilateralism, through to come at us, bro, we are unassailable wolf warriors, no one can stand against us, through to, oh no, why are you all so angry, can't we just be friends again? And all of that sort of happened rapidly over the course of really just Xi's. Most of that just happened under Xi. So for for me, it feels like you can still get that same instability, except instead of the instability arising from a democratic party running on a platform that is published somewhere through elections, instead you have this black box of instability where the instability is what is Xi and the people around him thinking this week? A completely opaque model that I think is as confusing sometimes to Xi's own diplomats mm. as it is to to those of us watching from abroad. So that's so so on yeah yeah I can say so that last point is an interesting point. If you hadn't added that, I I think what I would come back and say is that we've got to remember that this idea of what we're debating has to be seen with the eyes of people in that country. So while we may externally be like, oh, Putin was going to be all Western and NATO and now he's not, the argument that I would make back there is that like, well, he's adapted to a changing environment and Russia and he's put, you know, he's the the best interpreter. And again, this is not what I think, folks, but he is the best <laughs> interpreter of the Russian national interest and he's able to pursue that effectively. And I think I can make a, a pretty coherent argument that Xi Jinping has, has done the same. He's really channeled the, the Chinese national interest and he's able to put in place an effective foreign policy. I mean, now they effectively control a lot more land than they were going to. They've taken back Hong Kong, which was a, a domestic national, uh, the national interest from a domestic standpoint. Taiwan is in their sights. Like, I think you could make a very compelling argument if you were a Chinese nationalist that he has executed a very, uh, a very effective foreign policy, notwithstanding the fact that from the outside, it looks like he's changed tack a bunch of different times. Now, the last point you made, I think, is a good rebuttal. The idea that because the decision making is so opaque, people in his own government don't necessarily know what he's doing. And that probably doesn't make for the most effective foreign policy. And we can see that wolf warrior diplomats have, I think, harmed their country's diplomatic efforts more Mm -hmm. than served them. But again, I think the question of an incorrect foreign policy that doesn't work is a very different question to whether dictatorships are better equipped to succeed in foreign policy. Like we all make mistakes and that doesn't necessarily mean that they made a mistake and they pursued it correctly. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad system. It was just the wrong decision at the start, which any country... Yeah, and to be clear, I was pushing back on the idea that authoritarianism means that you get a consistent 
foreign policy that identifies one strategic North Star, and I think pursue the national interest is far too broad. I mean, every well, opaque, yeah. every government is pursuing that North Star. But I think what I was pushing back on was your suggestion that the advantage they have is that it is one consistent vision carried year to year. I guess what I would just say is your effectiveness argument aside, I would say that that, consi- that consistency hasn't always been there and it has just been a different vector of change and in some ways a less predictable and less consistent vector of change than, say, an electoral system or yeah. a uh, or a legislature. But I wanted to get back to your effectiveness point because that's really the the crux of the uh, of the argument. I think you're absolutely right that there are times when democracies will get in their own way. I think this example of not confirming ambassadors, not confirming senior people at the State Department in the U.S. is a prima facie example. There is just it is very difficult to come up with a redeeming quality for that effect. Well, but go go bigger. What about your pet what about your pet subject Brexit? I mean it's a democratic mandate that is a clear and I don't think anyone worth any you know worth anything says that Brexit was good foreign policy. Like you you can say that the process stuff is bad, but like the actual decision making is bad too. Again, I I think it is impossible to run the alternative scenario. Would a dictator or an authoritarian have kept the UK in the European Union, given that the Europe, given that the fundamental underlying reason for Brexit was the fact that the EU constrains UK decision making? Would an authoritarian have put up with it any more than fifty two percent? of those who voted in the referendum, I think is an, is, an open, is an open question. They might have pulled it out even faster and even sharper and without having any need to worry about. Which presumably would be a better result because a lot of the stuff that's been problematic about Brexit has been the indecision, the opacity, the debates, the negotiations, the potential that Keir Starmer, if he want, now I don't think he will, but the idea that there's a, a sizable portion of the Labour Party and, and generally the Brits who would be like, let's go back into Europe. Arguably, and I'm, you're the expert on this stuff, but arguably that's more damaging than the decision itself, which is why I think democracies are problematic in that. Sense. I don't think he's going to rejoin the European Union either, anytime yeah. soon. In fact, he's he's been pretty explicit that he won't right. in part to offset this kind of uncertainty. But look, I, I certainly take your point. I think you can unpack the Brexit case for hours to debate whether... You've made a career of it. <laughs> in fact, yeah, I have. Uh, not much of one, but send help is, I guess, my message. But uh, I think you can you can certainly go back and forth about whether the, the legislative kind of argy-bargy around implementation softened the executive's instinct towards rapid, destructive Brexit mm. or not. That's a whole other podcast. But I think from a, from a foreign policy perspective, one thing I wanted to throw back at you, and this is, I think, the absolute core of my argument, which is that to me, it feels like just anecdotally dealing with democracies and even messy democracies often allowed them to tell us that they couldn't do certain things because of democratic forces and democratic institutions and so on within their country that would not permit it. They had that as an excuse. Mm. There is nothing the US trade representative loves more 
than being able to turn around to a partner and go, I would love to do that mm-hmm. for you, but it would require an act of Congress and Congress isn't going to wear it. And I think for the most part, especially because everyone follows US politics, people get that. Mm. Whereas if if China says it can't do something, China can do whatever it wants. There are things it won't do. There are things it refuses to do. But there are very few things that it could not do if it decided to. And I think that ability to point to an outside force beyond the executive that can shape what is possible is actually a far bigger asset to Western foreign, to democratic foreign policy than it is a loss in the way that it constrains us. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I, I basically like, <laughs> it's a better at providing shitty excuses about why it makes shitty decisions. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, it's, it's an interesting point. And, and potentially you're right. You've had a lot more experience in the multilateral space where I think those excuses become much more valuable um, to like not upset a partner, but also not do what they ask. I I, I would say that China, I think if you touch on something interesting there, I would say that China, you said, you know, countries get it that America can't make decisions or the Brits can't make decisions or Australians can't make decisions without parliament. They, they, they don't like China doesn't fundamentally get that. Like I still, I mean, I, I think intellectually you can kind of look at, all the you know Wikipedia articles about like how democracies work, but if you if you come and you're so deeply embedded from a country where that doesn't that's not the case, I think they think of it as an excuse as well. I think they think of it like you can do what you mm. want. You're choosing not to. You're lying to our face. You, you're not a, tr- a credible partner. And I think vice versa, the way we interpret when a Chinese diplomat, often very reasonable people like who understand what we're trying to say to them, they will come back and say, I just can't get it past my crazy boss or my crazy boss's 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 boss, and that's the black box that we can't control because. What you're talking about there is just like having some arm length, arm's length, uncontrollable force that you say, I would love to, but, and China has plenty mm. of those, right? Um, so I, yeah, I, I take your point. I'm not sure that there's much of a difference between democracy and, and, and authoritarians. Maybe if you're talking to a really politically enabled person at the top of the Chinese system, then maybe that argument becomes less persuasive but you know i think probably if you're talking to someone at the top of the u.s system i'd be like yeah but you could do this if you actually really wanted to like you could give up something else and make this happen um so i I don't know one thing i would like to kind of put to you though is it more of like a forward-looking argument in that i think we both agree or you know i'll I'll say that and then you can push back if you don't that um democracies are not quick at making decisions they aren't they don't they don't make decisions in a timely fashion and certainly the decisions that they make don't get rolled out and executed in a timely fashion and particularly when you compare them to authoritarianism i think that one of the most underrated or under talked about problems that we face on the planet but particularly in foreign policy is that all of our systems in democracies are designed to react with cool slow heads i mean it's in the us constitution it's in this british sense of um, you know, clash of institutions to kind of just let everyone chill out. Let's come back and make a sober, rational decision. And yet what's changed since those decision-making um, institutions were set up is that the world is changing so fast that the, that the the time, by the time a decision is made in a democracy, certain things can be well out of hand and you can't put the cat back in the bag, as it were. Just listen to anyone talking about AI threats and they say, this is here to stay whether we like it or not. 
Now, China in China, that's not true. AI is not necessarily in China, whether they like it or not. They will use it and it will become a thing that they control. But like right now, if they decided they never wanted AI to be part of their society, they could do that. And I think that is a thing that we really underestimate about the threats that we're going to face over the next 20, 30, 50, 100 years. A disproportionate amount of them are going to move so fast that by the time we execute a foreign policy to deal with it, or a domestic policy, but we're talking about foreign policy, by the time we execute a foreign policy to deal with it, it'll be too late. And so you just you just can't make effective foreign policy going forward. Okay, I do wanna I do wanna push back on the second half of that. I agree democracies can be slow. I agree that a lot of our institutions are based on, you know, plotting stakeholder consultations, on deliberations, minority rights, on all that. minority rights, checks and balances, all of this kind of stuff. And I do take your point about the speed of threats coming, the speed of change coming down the pipe. I hear you, but I do think AI is a really perfect example, which is in a lot of ways, I am very, very glad that Western governments are not able to move quickly on an issue like AI, because I do not believe that an issue as complex as AI is graspable by our legislatures in anything but a deliberative process the kind of you know you were talking about unplugging you could unplug china from ai you could sh- probably shut down most access to llms in china the chinese have. government could yeah. that is the kind of absolute binary off switch decision that ultimately to me doesn't feel like it can't be optimal policy and it probably struggles to be good policy. AI is really, really complicated. There are unquestionably things it can be massively useful for. There are probably ways in which it can be harmful or dangerous. So the fact that our process forces us to be deliberative, I think short of missiles are in the air or tanks are rolling across the border, I think it is an advantage that our leaders generally cannot knee-jerk react to something that is on the front page or whatever the latest thing is, and that we, we our process forces them to go slow and be consultative and be deliberative. I think most of the time, the benefits will offset the losses. Me- Meanwhile, the potential threat is running unchecked to a point where we may where it may pass the Rubicon, and no matter what that deliberative process leads to, is unable to be wound back. Like I think if you are being, you know, my job here is to be as generous as I possibly can to regimes mm. that I don't agree with, but Ch- nothing prevents China from doing exactly what you just said about democracies. But it does allow it to just say we're not going to ca- take the cap off the toothpaste yet. We're going to be deliberative, and then when we've had to think about it and we do grasp it, because I completely agree with you that I have no trust in lawmakers to get this stuff right. But once we have had the time, then we'll allow it to propagate in a way that we understand at the cost of maybe you're a couple of years behind the development. Maybe you're not at the bleeding edge of development. And may, and and perhaps that's a bad thing, but it does allow you to get a hold of these threats. I don't know enough about AI to you know speak much more about it without sounding like a clown. But if we look at the, the TikTok example, which I think is a really interesting one, because what you have in China is an authoritarian regime which would never allow itself to get into a position or at least a decade and change ago identified that US social media companies were a potential threat to 
stability in China. And it used what I would call a foreign policy to basically say, nope, no more. No foreign, no foreign internet companies in China. You to look at America, where TikTok is, you know, allowed because that's the, the model, it is now very, very difficult for them to execute a foreign policy that is effective by saying we're going to ban TikTok. And, you know, I'm of the belief that TikTok is used by the Chinese government to collect data. I'm be- I believe it is a national security risk, not necessarily something you would ban, but it's a risk. And yet the US government doesn't really have the tools to deal with it because it is a democracy in which you are going to have to fight about this stuff forever. And because it's been in in the country for four or five years, there are stakeholders who are going to fight back and say, compensate me, all this kind of stuff. It, it makes for inefficient and often bad policy. Yeah, I think that the TikTok example is an, is an interesting one. I wanted to push back again on this notion of, oh, China could be deliberative and really think about this. Because I do think that one advantage that robust institutions with actual check and balance authority provide Western governments is a genuine ability to say, no, you're wrong. I think if the message came down that Xi is inclined to ban AI, I think you would have to be a very, very brave person in in a Chinese institution to send up the memo that goes, that's a really silly idea. Whereas I think the in, in our systems, there would be no shortage of people mm. who would say, that's a bad idea and here's why. A- and so I do think the West, the Lord knows we're not perfect at this, because we have the muscle memory and the ability to tell our leaders know, and the ability to shape forces outside of the executive to block the executive, whether that be public opinion or whether that be the courts or institutions, we have greater room to present arguments to the contrary. And so we're probably just better at internal dissent, at course correction, and at stopping stopping bad ideas before they become bad. But that doesn't make your TikTok example less less valid. I think that is an example of where if you view TikTok as a threat, China was unquestionably better at dealing with threats like TikTok than the US was. I think there's a question of whether that's about values or and institutions or just institutions there. Yes. And I think I think the point about TikTok, or you can make it about Russian misinformation or generally anything in the digital space because it is this example of zero marginal costs and, you know, basically untrackable, untraceable, unstoppable in democracies because you don't control the internet. Those are the kinds of problems that we are increasingly going to face. Like if there's, a, if there's an overall proportion of problems that countries face, the share of problems that have those characteristics, i.e. move so quickly you can't, keep, you can't get ahead of them without pushing pause, and if you don't have the pause button in your system you can't really stop them. The proportion of problems that have those characteristics is only going to grow the further we get into this century. So I think my argument is that we are fundamentally, democracies are fundamentally unequipped to grapple with these kinds of problems. Um, And, you know, I think to sort of kind of just add to what you were saying about China, I, I do agree that there are less dissenting voices, but I would be add a little nuance to it. They consult incredibly widely in the decision-making process. When you send a memo up from local governments to wherever it is or from the ministry of whatever it is, those 
those those memos, those work groups, those task forces, they are taken incredibly seriously. They are real policymakers. It's when the decision is made that the execution of it brooks no dissent. So I think you, you mentioned an important word, course correction. I think authoritarians are very, very bad at having made a decision, at recognizing that it maybe wasn't the right decision and undoing that decision and reversing or course correction. Democracies are a lot better at that because you have an election. They have the political ability to say, oh, they're all, they're all, they're, the former party's ideas were all terrible. We're going to change course. But in the policy making space, I, I don't know that I would say it's true that China doesn't do as good a job as a, a democracy. I just think we don't see it. I mean, I think this is this is both of us trying to have our cake and eat it too. I don't think that you can argue that China is hyper agile and makes rapid decisions if you want to simultaneously lift up their legislative, their policymaking process and as they last. Separate execution from decision making. I don't think they make super rapid decisions all the time, but they execute, they have the ability to execute them quickly. So right, okay. like, there's a difference there. Okay, fair enough. Um, I do think on the whole that Governments in democracies have generally gotten quite good at identifying what, how to craft decisions that they can execute quickly through authority that is executive authority or under existing legislation mm. that doesn't require these kind of processes. I mean, I'm painting with a really, really broad brush here. Uh, I think that one of the trade-offs you can think about is... In a dictatorship, you have to worry about pandering to the ego of the dictator mm. or the party. In democracies, we have to pander to sometimes, you know, marginal constituencies right. that are, you know, 2% of the population, but happen to live in a swing state. Mm -hmm. So I think it's six, for me, it's six to one in Pickham, whether would you, is the policy, is the foreign policy process hurt more by having to cater all of your messaging to flatter Putin's worldview? Or is it hurt more by having to have your entire policy towards Cuba driven by... Some folks in Miami, yeah. Exactly, by dudes in Miami. Mm -hmm. Neither of which is necessarily sort of optimal from a yeah. platonic view of foreign policy, but I think both can both can cause problems. I guess... We're, we're almost out of time, and I want to give you a, a, an opportunity to sum up. I think for me, the strongest ar argument I can make for your side is that on gigantic global challenges, there are certainly issues where we would benefit from if everybody could just do things. If nobody had to worry about voters, if you could, if you could really just solve climate change or do everything required to deal with climate change by having 192 authoritarians get into a room and just execute and they didn't have to worry about you know winning the rust belt maybe that would be a maybe that would be an advantage maybe they would be quicker at forging consensus maybe you would have less posturing but i i'm not sold on that no i'm not either to be honest with you let me like now that i can take that hat off i i think there's something fundamentally um human about even if you make the right decision having some sense that you can influence or can control that decision like i would much rather make a mistake myself than rather than have someone make a mistake on my behalf without me having an ability to say it so i think i i agree with you i think the strongest argument i have for yours and i think that's a good way of like summing up is 
my, I, I think the speed argument and the efficiency argument is the most persuasive reason to be, believe that dictatorships are better equipped. I think that the EU, when it comes to their tech regulations right now, is a pretty good counterexample of democracies aren't always behind the eight ball. They aren't always slow. They aren't always able to, you know, stuck behind with like marginal constituents. The EU has done a really good job, whether you agree with their regulations or not, but they're doing a really good job of grappling with these issues almost in real time in a deliberative, but, but, you know, efficient way. Um, and, and saying, Hey, in, in Europe, we can pause some of these developments until we know more about them, or at least make them slow down a bit until we know more about them. But it's a democratic process. So like you can almost have the best of both worlds. I, I mean, whether you agree with their decisions or not is kind of not the point. It just goes against my argument that democracies are flailing around in the wind while the world changes. Um, but <laughs> while you were talking, I, I, I opened up ChatGPT. I asked it um, the question, are dictatorships better equipped to succeed in foreign policy? And this is the perfect way to summarize, I think. In summary, while dictatorships might have the ability to be more decisive and swift when implementing foreign policy due to a lack of internal checks and balances, this doesn't necessarily mean they are better at it. The quality and effectiveness of foreign policy implementation are contingent on many factors, including, but not limited to, international legitimacy, adherence to international law and norms, and the skill and wisdom of the policymakers. So my next question to do to you, Dimitri, is have we just wasted an hour and are we out of jobs? I mean, we are out of jobs, almost <laughs> certainly, but I don't think it's because we've wasted the hour. I think that the second half of ChatGPT's answers there was, frankly, a cop-out. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I don't think take there's a, anything magical stand, about it here. <laughs> yeah, come on. Like, adherence to the rule of law, what does that even mean? Right. Um, like, you can you can go a lot of different ways on that. You know, the ICC example with the US is a perfect one. I think what I would say is that if you... If you judge by the really big accomplishments in foreign relations, the systems that govern the way the world works, the giant multilateral institutions, the treaties that are enjoyed, the alliances that have endured, democracies have built most of them, it is fair to say. Yeah. You know, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, even at its best, was a shadow of what NATO and the European Union are. BRICS is not a real alliance and features a couple of democracies to begin with anyway. So I think if you do go on record, they've had plenty of setbacks, they've made plenty of mistakes, but the record says that democracies can pull off really strong foreign policy when they have to, mm -hmm. and they've got a pretty good record of doing it. And frankly, the benefits to foreign policy efficiency of living in an authoritarian regime probably don't outweigh the downsides to, to somewhat understate that last point. Yep. I think that's all a very fair place to leave it. Um, and again, for the future, the future journalists who want to like clip me and out, out of context, let me, let me reiterate, I don't necessarily believe all the things I said in the past half hour. <laughs> so everything 32 minutes ago, he a hundred percent believes you can check the timestamps. We hope you enjoyed that. I don't think we really even got to halfway no. through all of the different ways we could toss this particular ball around. I hope the fan who uh, kicked us this ball is happy with the way that we have spiked it through into the hole. And let us know Let us know what, what people disagree with, what people agree with, any extra thoughts, because it'd be interesting to kind of touch back on, like like you tried to do at the start of this, of, of, of this podcast, it'd be interesting to kind of 
touch back in on some of the debates that resonate with people and get some extra points of view. Otherwise, really, it is just you and I furiously disagreeing, agreeing with each other. Yeah, I'm still haven't decided whether we prefer an authoritarian well, then, model of this podcast, quite so. where or or we like some course correction. I think the course correction would be better, quite so. Despite John's love for autocracy. So with that. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, We will be back next week with another debate. In the interim, please do give us a like or a subscribe. Please do rate us on your favorite podcasting depository. And as always, please do also subscribe to International Intrigue, the newsletter that informs this podcast and its hosts. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye.